1: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In
2: the next yeah, not know
0: Why is so far?
2: Like, it sounds so
0: simple.
3: They had no idea. But now the data's speaks. I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding.
4: Nature. Nature. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week, comparing ultra-accurate clocks.
0: And the life of a trailblazing astronomer. I'm Sharmini Bundel,
4: And I'm Nick Petridge howe How long is a second? You probably have some intuitive idea. Maybe you count using Mississippis. But for scientists, that usually isn't accurate enough. That's because a lot of research, as well as things like GPS, rely on super accurate measurements of time. And that's where atomic clocks come in. You see, atoms tick too, albeit much faster than a regular clock. Atoms have regular electronic oscillations that can be used to very accurately measure the passage of time. In fact, a cesium atomic clock currently gives the internationally recognised standard for the second. But scientists haven't stopped there. More recently, they have developed clocks known as optical atomic clocks. These measure optical oscillations, in other words, photons, which tick. A lot faster than electrons do. And faster ticking means that optical atomic clocks are even more accurate than the standard atomic clocks.
5: So currently the best optical atomic clocks outperform the best microwave clocks or the normal atomic clock that people are familiar with by almost a factor of 100 in accuracy.
4: This is Tara Fortier, a laser researcher from the National Institute of Standards and Technology in the US. So, if these optical clocks are more accurate, why are we still using the regular atomic clocks? Well, there are a few reasons, but essentially, one clock isn't enough. To confirm a measurement, you need a whole bunch of these clocks across the world, and they all have to agree, very, very, very precisely. As an analogy, if you were measuring the distance from here to the moon, you'd need to do it within a few nanometers. And this is even more complicated with clocks, because you have to do that measurement several times with different clocks in different locations around the world. But if you could do it, it is possible that we could redefine time, or rather the measurement of time, a second. This week in Nature, researchers report a network of three optical clocks that are getting a bit closer to this lofty goal. The group that includes Tara is known as the Boulder Atomic Clock Optical Network, or the Bacon Collaboration.
5: We had a lot of fun. I think we gave some talks in the past, you know, with big strips of bacon. You know, it's very rare that, you know, science gets to have a sense of humour.
4: Attentive listeners will have noticed that I said this network has brought the redefinition of the units of time a bit closer. So how close do Bacon's clocks bring us?
5: There is actually a roadmap that's, that's been laid out to be able to redefine time. And one of them is the comparison of optical atomic clocks against one another at low parts and 10 to the minus 18. So that's 18 digits of resolution um, and accuracy. In the comparison between two optical atomic clocks, in the measurements we actually demonstrated comparison between these clocks closer to the high 10 to the minus 18 level. So not quite at the level that required to hit these roadmaps, but despite the fact that we didn't quite hit targets for redefinition for the SI second, we did demonstrate current record level of comparison between clocks, almost at you know a factor of 10 improvement against previous measurements which to us is remarkable and impressive in itself.
4: So how did the team accomplish this record-breaking network? Well, they used optical fiber cables to link the clocks and connect the signals. And in a world first, they also connected them using laser signals. The two methods allowed comparisons to be made to ensure they were reaching the high levels of accuracy. The laser signal method may also have another benefit. Namely, it could allow comparisons between clocks using satellites, which could be incredibly useful in places that don't have an expansive optical fibre network, like the USA, where many of these clocks are based. At the moment, the clocks were only a few kilometres apart, but Tara says this lays the path for future work.
5: For us, it's kind of one of the first steps towards redefinition of the second. Likely, national labs around the world are going to try to kind of redo these comparisons locally, like we have done. But as I said, you know, this is really kind of one of the first steps. The next step, which is the really complicated step, will be once national labs around the world have done comparisons like ours, demonstrating agreement between these clocks at 18 digits of accuracy, what we'll then have to do is compare clocks internationally, right? So. In Europe, you know, maybe UK and French and German clocks will have to compare against each other over optical fibre networks.
4: But what would redefining the second mean? Day to day, I can't really imagine that it would make too much of a difference. A second is something that passes me by without too much notice. After all, it doesn't really matter how you define time, it's still going to keep on passing us by. You may feel similarly, But for physicists, it could be very exciting.
5: Optical atomic clocks are very sensitive to gravitational potential. And what that means is, is depending where you are in terms of altitude, the clocks will tick faster or slower. So what you can do is you can take two clocks, and if you put one at one altitude and one at the other altitude, you can compare the timing between the two clocks to be able to map basically gravitational potential eventually maybe at at the millimeter or centimeter level and what will that will do is at the millimeter level uh, we'll be able to get a more precise mapping of the gravitational potential measurements that we use now
4: in a similar vein the bacon group actually performed some comparisons between the clocks with a physics question in mind the search for dark matter You see, if you have a sensitive and accurate enough clock, any interaction with dark matter would cause a tiny perturbation. If you can then compare that clock accurately enough with other clocks that were more or less sensitive to these disturbances, then you could detect those perturbations. In other words, dark matter.
5: We didn't see any evidence of dark matter. But as the accuracy of these clocks continues to improve, what we can do is we can put better constraints on violations of fundamental physical laws, or, you know, eventually, maybe the sensitivities of these clocks will be good enough to eventually be able to pick up faint dark matter signals, right, or see very, very, very small changes in our physical laws, let's say in gravitational laws, or by looking at, you know, time changes and fundamental constants, which according to Einstein, are not supposed to change, right? And if we were to eventually see change, time changes and fundamental constants or small violations of our physical laws that might indicate physics beyond the standard model. So that would be very exciting for for physicists, especially theorists, in our, in our search and exploration to better understand our physical laws.
4: That was Tara Fortier of the Bacon Collaboration and the National Institute of Standards and Technology in the US. You can find a link to the paper, along with a News & Views article on the topic, in the show notes.
0: Coming up, we'll be hearing about Vera Rubin, a pioneering observational astronomer who helped pave the way for women in the field. But before that, it's time for this week's research highlights, with Dan Fox.
3: Regular exercise can be great for your health, but more fanatical workouts might have a metabolic downside, as new analysis suggests that highly intensive exercise can blunt the body's ability to regulate blood sugar. Researchers had 11 volunteers do three weeks of increasingly strenuous exercise. The participants' athletic performance improved after a transition from light to moderate training, but stagnated with the most intense regime. Weekly muscle biopsies may have revealed the cause, as the energy-producing capacity of mitochondria initially increased but then dropped drastically with the more vigorous training. And this reduction coincided with an impaired ability to metabolize the glucose from a glass of sugar water the volunteers were given to drink. The team also studied a separate group of 15 professional endurance athletes and 12 non-athletes and found that while their average blood sugar levels over 24 hours were nearly identical, the professionals experienced longer periods of high and low blood sugar, suggesting they had impaired glucose control. Why not skip today's workout and read that research instead? At Cell Metabolism. A new adaptable robot has a nifty trick for when it needs to move efficiently over different terrain, or reach a tall shelf it can autonomously extend and contract its legs. Researchers trained the shape-shifting quadruped in a lab by having it walk over patches of concrete, sand and gravel. These exercises allowed the team to model how the energy the robot needed to walk was affected by both terrain and the length of the robot's jointed legs. When the robot was ultimately turned loose outside, it used this model to improve its efficiency by changing leg length On the fly other demonstrations of morphing robots have relied in part on simulation but the team behind this four-legged creation think that doing the research entirely on hardware meant that it was guaranteed to work in reality stretch your legs and go and find that research over at nature machine intelligence
0: Earlier on, we heard about the ongoing search for dark matter, but now we're going back to the very beginnings of that search, specifically to the astronomer whose pioneering work was one of the first bits of evidence for dark matter. Her name was Vera Rubin, and last month, two astronomers, Jacqueline Mitton and Simon Mitton, published a new biography documenting her life. The biography, Vera Rubin, A Life, has been reviewed this week by veteran reporter Alison Abbott, and Noah Baker called her up for a chat.
2: Vera Rubin is a character that I didn't know much about until I came to this book. Can you give us just a quick overview of who she was and what she did in her field that made her notable?
1: I think if you haven't heard of her now, more people will have heard of her in the future because she's the first woman to have a large observatory named for her. The Vera Rubin Observatory is going to be launched, I think it sees first light this year, and will do experimental readings next year. Who was she? She was born in 1928. She was the daughter of European refugees, so she didn't have a silver spoon in her mouth when she began, but she did actually become one of America's most important and influential observational astronomers the 20th century.
2: So much of her work was carried out at the Carnegie Institute of Washington, where she took up a post in 1965 and remained until she retired, actually. The last paper she published was when she was 77. But tell us a little bit about her journey before she got to the Carnegie Institute, because it's quite a colourful story.
1: When she was a young child, she used to look at the stars. She was a great star observer. She loved to see them moving. When she was only 14, she built her own telescope out of a, an old cardboard tube and a simple objective she went on to study at Vasa which was at that point a women only college and she chose that because it was one of the very few colleges in the us that had astronomy as an undergraduate course and from there she went to Cornell etc cetera, etc cetera. but her career was really only consolidated when she was in her early 40s in the time From 20 to 40, she started to really focus her attention on spiral galaxies, and she measured the movement of stars within those galaxies, compared them to the distance from the gravitational center of those galaxies, and found contrary to all belief that the motion of these stars did not decline the further they got away from the center of gravity.
2: And that discovery would actually go on to be one of the most influential things that she contributed to the field of astronomy in her career, because it provided the evidence that was needed to demonstrate the existence of dark matter, something that is a huge field within astronomy now.
1: Yes, absolutely. And this is what she's going to be best known for, I think.
2: And her real love throughout her career, she at at various points studied cosmology and other fields in physics, but her love was really the observation of spiral galaxies. She didn't jump for the flash. She didn't jump for the big competitive fields like cosmology. That wasn't the thing that really turned on. She seemed to spend a lot of her time doing this methodical, vital data gathering, observational work, which really informed a lot of other work by her peers around her.
1: Yes, that's right. She was really at the forefront of observational astronomy. But to start with, it was quite difficult because That's not what women astronomers did. They were not allowed to go to the observatories. All sorts of excuses were put out there. The most ridiculous was observatories where they only had one toilet and therefore it was for men and therefore women just simply couldn't go and do science. She found ways around all of these obstacles. But there were also technical obstacles which she also found her way around by teaming up with a scientist who had developed a new imaging system which allowed more photons to be gathered and therefore, increasing the quality of data that you could collect.
2: There is this other side of Vera Rubin, which comes up in this biography, which is really fascinating, which is her role as one of the really early champions of diversity and inclusion in research and trying to champion for for equal representation of women, for example, on panels. And that was very much informed by her own experience. Can you tell us a little bit about the challenges that she faced?
1: So this goes right back to the beginning of her career when she was studying at VASA, Vera actually fell in love when she was 21. And she decided very quickly that she wanted to get married and have a family. The head of astronomy there was very, very disapproving. She told her that it would really be the end of her career. Because at that time, these things were considered absolutely incompatible. She wanted everything and she achieved everything.
2: What kind of legacy do you think that she might have left for future women in science moving forward?
1: Oh, I think she's a very, very big inspiration. When she actually consolidated her career, then she turned her attention to really doing something for the next generation of women. And that's what I so admire about her. And she did this by just throwing her weight around now. I mean, in the nicest possible way, she was always the most polite person to deal with. Um, But she would just simply, politely, constantly insist that women should be appropriately represented on committees that would make decisions about careers. She insisted that conference organisers invite an appropriate number of female speakers as male speakers. And she chided those conference organisers publicly if they failed to do this.
2: Initiatives such as this, balancing conference panels, for example, this is still something that's happening and there are still pushes to try to find representation. But Vera Rubin was making these steps back in the 60s and 70s. This, she really was a trailblazer.
1: Yeah, she was a trailblazer. She invented it all.
2: <laughs> I'm interested in what your response to the book was, especially someone who isn't an astronomer as your field.
1: So yes, I'm not an astronomer. And I learned a lot about astronomy through this book. It's incredibly well written. Vera takes you through the whole book of course that's what it's about but en route we learn a lot about the development of physics in the u.s during the 20th century and that was just as fascinating as Vera's story Everything from the impact of the immigration to the U.S., from refugees from Europe during the rise of fascism, from the consequences post-fascism, when the Americans had sort of helped win the war and hauled over to America, the top German scientists, and how that impacted astronomy. It all fits together into a wonderful jigsaw, and I, I really can't recommend the book enough. That was reporter Alison Abbott talking
0: to Noah Baker. To find out more about Vera's life, then check out the show notes where there'll be a link to Alison's review of the book.
4: Finally on the show, it's time for the weekly briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. Shalmany, what have you brought to me to discuss this time?
0: So I've got this Guardian article in front of me that was linked to from the briefing. And I basically picked this story just on the basis of a sort of shocking headline here. It's actually a study that was published in Nature that found that bottom trawling of the ocean floor releases as much carbon dioxide as the entire aviation industry.
4: Okay, well, I mean, I don't know the precise amount of carbon the aviation industry releases, but I'm assuming it's quite a lot. And I wouldn't have thought the same amount would be coming from an activity like bottom trawling like how is it contributing so much and how much is it contributing
0: yeah this isn't something that i was previously aware of obviously air travel um does release a, a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere but it turns out that loads of this carbon is stored in sediments in the seabed in, in fact marine sediments are the largest pool of carbon storage on the planet, so when fishing boats trawl along the bottom, they're disturbing all this sediment. And the um, the new study estimates that an average of a gigaton carbon dioxide is is released annually. This is, is this sort of range that they've estimated, but uh, this is slightly higher than aviation emissions of carbon dioxide in twenty nineteen were um, almost also almost a gigaton, um, which is huge.
4: Yeah, so what sort of contribution might this be making to climate change, I guess? like, It sounds like a huge amount of carbon going into the atmosphere, so I'm guessing quite a sizable impact.
0: Yes, but it's not quite so dire because what this study also does is actually look at how this might be reduced. And they've looked at who are the biggest sort of contributors to this, which parts of the sea this is coming from. And they're not... Suggesting like, right, we have to stop all all trawling, although there are um, other sort of ecological reasons why trawling might be a problem. But what they're actually saying is that what we need to think about is how to continue to be able to use the oceans in order to produce food, but increase the amount of protected areas. And they have pointed out that currently only 7% of the ocean is under any kind of protection, and they reckon that if you just increase that to thirty percent, and they've got a suggested aim that countries could work together to protect at least thirty percent of the ocean by twenty thirty, uh, that would have a massive impact on the amount of carbon dioxide released. Especially if you make sure that the the correct areas are being protected, um, while areas are still available for use to produce food.
4: So some areas may be more important for fighting climate change to protect than others and things like that.
0: Exactly. So um, a, a lot of the areas that they're talking about are in national waters, so relatively easier to regulate. And they also mentioned specifically Antarctica, which currently has hardly any protection, but is a sort of major conservation hotspot and hosts many sort of species that are going to be in trouble in the future due to climate change anyway. So I think what researchers are kind of hoping for is that this year's COP15 conference, which is the UN's biodiversity conference, might be able to result in some kind of global agreement relating to this.
1: Well we'll have
4: to see what happens in this year's COP15 and I'm sure we'll be talking about that more on the podcast when it comes around to it. But for my story this week on The Briefing, Shamini, have you ever heard of Camille Nu?
0: Um no, should I? Is this, is this, is this a pop artist? Um that the youth are into nowadays that I'm out of touch with.
4: Wow, you really sounded so down with the kids then. It was incredible. Uh, No, so Nu is an author of over 180 scientific papers, but I don't actually blame you for not having heard of them because they are fictional.
0: Okay, well, I I don't feel too bad then, but um, we don't usually talk about fictional authors or science on the podcast so what's so special about this character
4: well this character who's being created by a protest movement in france is basically being put onto very real scientific papers as a form of sort of protest against some new legislation that's coming into place in france which some advocacy groups are claiming will stifle academic freedom and affect job security, and this new legislation overly emphasizes individual accomplishment, and so this fictional Camille Nu is almost a personification of the more collective action of science
0: so what does the what does the new legislation actually sort of say and is is putting a sort of fictional extra author? on the paper's purely symbolic or does it actually sort of fight some of the problems being caused?
4: Well to start off with it's probably worth talking about how science is done in France at the moment so you may be more familiar with the UK system or the US system where there's a lot of competitive grants and early career researchers basically bounce around from different places trying to get different competitive grants and eventually get a more secure position. That isn't so much the case in France. There, there is a more structured job progression and scientists are actually more public servants. But new legislation is moving France towards this more US-UK style system where there will be more competition and things like that and papers will lend a lot more credence to career progression. And so the idea of this fictional person is by adding them to loads and loads of papers, it will distort some of the metrics that are being used to classify people's, I, I guess, rankings in science and sort of show the absurdity of a system that values how many papers you've produced rather than other aspects of scientific work.
0: And pu- putting a, putting a f- like fictional author on loads of different papers, I mean, is that going to mess up any other metrics unintentionally
4: well there may be some unintentional consequences of this so some people some french scientists are very supportive of it and the group that came up with it called rogue esr hope that it will just show the absurdity of the system but some people have raised concerns so in this article that i was reading in science they interviewed a bioethicist and they were saying that it could be problematic as When you offer a scientific paper, you also take responsibility for it. So if there's a fictional author, then whose responsibility is it? And also it waters down the sort of credit that the actual authors on that paper get. And potentially, you could be a young researcher who's writing your first paper. Maybe the senior academic on that paper includes this author, which then may actually lead to the paper being withdrawn, which has happened a couple of times. And then you lose your opportunity to have a paper out because the senior researcher for example may be protesting this new legislation in france so there could be some unintentional consequences and some journals have said it's against their guidelines to include such an author and for instance a springer nature journal scientific reports has launched an investigation into a paper that has used this author
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think there'll be probably a lot of researchers listening who might prefer a a more sort of France-like system. So this certainly sort of helps add to the debate around how science and and scientific careers uh, should be structured.
4: No, certainly. And I think there'll be a lot more on this debate in the future. But thanks for talking to me, Charmany. And listeners, if you're interested in more stories like this, but instead as an email, then make sure you check out The Nature Briefing. We'll put a link in the show notes where you can sign up.
0: And before you go, I want to give a quick shout out to our latest video over on the Nature YouTube channel. It's all about diamonds. Now, diamonds have never been my best friend, but that might be because I'm not a quantum physicist. Uh, It turns out that diamonds can be really useful for all sorts of things, including quantum physics and even treating disease. All is explained in the film, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes.
4: That's all for this week, but don't forget you can reach out to us on Twitter, we're at Nature Podcast, or you can send us an email, we're podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Petrichow.
0: And I'm Sharmini Bandel. Thanks for listening.
2: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and three hundred sixty five day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
5: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.